Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome back to the Glad Chad Podcast. I'm Jordan Pacheco. And I'm Rodolfo Carlos. Still Rodolfo Carlos. I like that. I'm you know, still you never, Rodolfo Carlos. Have you ever introduced yourself as Rudy once on our show? You know, I probably should now that AOC is taking names. Oh, that's names. right. Oh, are you, are you, so. uh, Steven Crowder said sign himself up. So I'm actually with him. <laughs> it's funny, right? It's funny how um, we're supposed to be the fascists and the evil ones. And yet who are the people who are like, you know what we should do? We should, we should put all the Trump supporters on the list. <laughs> yeah, it didn't like, take very long, you know. I mean, they, they think that they won so far. And Oh, that's right. Yeah. We're celebrating. Well, it's what is it? What's the date today? It's the it's the eighth, so which is the I say five days after the election. Mm-hmm. Um, dude, there is so much tomfoolery happening. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's getting pretty wild, and uh, there's still a lot more more to come. So there's a lot, there's a lot we'll see. Um, I'm I'm really impatient, so I wanna I wanna have the answer yesterday well this is a problem because we were all (laughs) we all went to bed on november 3rd and we said we're gonna wake up and it's gonna be another four more years of the emperor and apparently that was so triggering to the democratic party that they had to cheat in order to (laughs) in order to get this happening which i think happened because how do you get on 100 percent ballot dump in wisconsin michigan 138,000 votes for biden oh none for trump but it's it's just a glitch nevada doesn't even resume counting till thursday or whatever like all this this, not to mention the turnout also you know like the turnout statistics were were much higher than anything really reported ever so i highly doubt even with you know some states had uh same day registration so maybe there could be an uptick in you know voter turnout but when you're getting numbers like close to 80 that's there these margins are higher than 2016 and they're hard they're higher than obama's 08 win for biden yeah. which means ergo that that's biden is more popular, popular you know apparently you know hold 20 cars at a rally um i went up to denver yesterday because there was like there's the march around jericho's there's a count the vote kind of thing and i was i was doing right. some other business and i wanted to go to the state capitol but like, of course, that was the day that the election was called. So I was like, this is not probably a prudent place to be right now. With all no, the and Ashley, Ashley and I were, were worried about you guys because mm. we, were, we were thinking about, when was that? It was like, um, it was a Trump rally that happened, what, like three or four weeks ago in Denver where the, the man got yeah. killed. Yeah, there was. And you know, what's funny is that was, you're going to love, you're going to love this. Um, Jen and I had we a were date. There that day. Jen and I, well, not there specifically. I wanted to go, but Jen and I had, a, had, a, had an express date day at the art museum, which is in the same, um, um, I guess you'd say the same uh, surrounding as Capitol Hill here in Denver. So that happened mm-hmm. literally. So we were at ground zero, but we were, you know, away enough and it was all quiet in the museum and everything. Um, wow. Otherwise not, what people need to understand about Colorado is it's, it's kind of like how, you know how LA is the world, but you get out of yeah. LA, you get into Bakersfield or San Diego or whatever, and you realize that people are normal. Colorado is mm-hmm. very much like that. You have your liberal hubs of Boulder and Denver, but every place else is pretty conservative. Like here in Douglas County, where I live, just an hour outside of Denver, 45 minutes outside of Denver. I mean, it's all Trump territory. So it's like you stay away it's, from Denver because a country. And I feel bad because you know I feel like my I was as I was driving through Denver and I, I I've taken a really hard look at Denver recently. Um, it's not the same city of my childhood. 
and it's way more yuppie, but that's not a good thing. It's, I don't know, it feels decayed. Like, I feel like Denver used to be a real nice Western city, if you will. But driving through, I'm like, wow, I have no love for Denver like I did in my boyhood. You know, I don't, I don't get excited looking at Ocean, well, it used to be Ocean's Journey, now Downtown Aquarium, or Six Flags, which used to be Elitch's. My High Stadium is now called, like, the Empowerment Field or some, some really bad. The Pepsi Center is now the Blue Center, the Blue Stadium, or, or no, or the Ball Center, Ball Stadium. Just That's what it's called, the Ball Stadium? Yeah, it's, and it's just, things are just That's changing, you know? Yeah, and like I look around and like Denver's kind of cool because the architecture of, of old Denver is these kind of nice 1900s red brick houses, if you will. But all the streets that keep going on off of like University or maybe another street, they're not like they're not the nicest kind of houses. There's a couple of real gems, but it's like it's like Los Angeles, right? Where you have like the old LA architecture, which is really, really nice. And then everything else is just kind of starting to decay a little bit and get older. And it's just not, it's just not. I don't love it. I don't have the kind of, I came back to Colorado and I, I love Colorado, but in terms of Denver as a city, I feel like I'm just back in LA depending on what parts I'm in. And that doesn't make me very happy. Like the people can be the same sometimes depending on what part of town you go to. It just, it just doesn't feel, it's not, it's not home, right? Home is yeah. it's the countryside for me. One of the uh, worst companies that I ever worked with. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, has a small store in Denver. And I was thinking, oh, this was, I was thinking about it because of the election, because uh-huh. Colorado, it swung blue. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking, wow, you know, Colorado, sometimes it goes red, sometimes it goes blue. But for the most part in the past, I think it mostly went red. Am I, am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. I mean, we used to be way more of a swing state. Uh, we are kind more, of, yeah. the last three elections, maybe even four, um, yeah, the last four elections now, technically, uh, we've swung blue. But sometimes we'd send a Republican senator or something like that. But lately, mm-hmm. it's just, again, it's just changing. Yeah. But, uh, you know, a lot of Californians and a lot of people from the West Coast end up going to Colorado. And I oh, think that has yeah. contributed to not only the state turning blue, maybe it's not going to be a swing state anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also to, like, I think a lot of the decay and the culture and um, maybe in the cities that you're saying, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not, obviously I'm not like a city planner or anything like yeah. that. So, I mean, but a lot of people go there. Yeah. A here. lot. This is a huge, they bring their ideas and they bring their ideas and this is what's happening in Texas, Nevada, Arizona. And this is the funny thing, right? Because the coast, like it, it's for those who maybe still live in California or those certainly who don't live in California, there is this natural dislike of Californians purely based on their ideas. Yeah. If you're from the, the proper West, right, if you're from Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, if uh, Nebraska, Kansas, any of the things, any place really, um, California, it's like they come into the States because you can't afford California. It's, it's becoming a hellhole. Um, yeah. And then they come. I mean, literally, into- it's, it's like, it's, I mean, without going into using bad language, it is really like an asshole. An here. asshole. <laughs> like, yeah. Like even in the nice areas. Like some, some parts of Burbank too. There used to be, there used to be no, there used to not be a homeless thing in Burbank when I first moved out there five years ago. I really don't remember ever seeing, but now like, um, what is it? Skid Row's expanded 25, 30% and it's just, everything's just bled up. Um, it's, it's becoming what San Francisco is where you have a very, very nice part of town and there's syringes everywhere and the homeless problem and everything. Um, 
And it's like, it's like you sit there and I'm like, you know, what happens is, and this is like a huge thing about democratic party moving to socialism is everyone's equally miserable. So you have people who are paying really, really high taxes and their property rates are going up and people who don't own anything who are um, 30, 40, $50,000 in debt uh, think that the, it's the richest fault or something like that. And what they do is they vote, the Democratic Party sweeps in and says, well, we'll lift you out of your dreg heap, but this is what we ask. We want you to pay a little bit more here. We want you to fund this program here or something. And what happens is that you get LA is not a, a utopia. LA is a, a, not a good city. It's not a good city for families. Isn't, it so, can't afford a isn't house. it so interesting too, like how so many people are in debt. And I think the majority of people are in debt because of school. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and it's it's from these crazy liberal arts uh, degrees that they went for, and you know, I think now there's there's sort of uh, an infrastructure for that because you know there's a lot Uber. of liberal cities and stuff like that, so they mm-hmm. they need somebody who can I don't know <laughs> well, be an underwater basket weaver. No, you precisely hit on that thing. Crazy and here, here's, here's the difference, right? Back in our parents' days, there was no federal backing of, there was no federal student loans. So when people talk about what what happened to colleges, it's that it wasn't an endless supply of money and manpower. So first off, not an endless supply. And then second off, now education has become a right and not just like high school, not even just community college. Um, And some states are able to fund their community colleges for free. California is one of them. Tennessee is one of them because of like lotteries and that sort of thing. I think it's a great, great, uh, thing if a state can do but it's like no you need a four-year university degree no matter what you're doing and so um and we're naturally unfortunately we've become a society of debtors both physically monetarily and i think of course i think very much it's bled into our spiritual um kind of rigor so yeah you know you tell a little 18 year old girl who doesn't know what she wants to do um well you need you whatever you need to do if you went to the public school system k through 12 you need to go get a four-year degree from a university no, no matter what it is because if you don't you're not going to succeed at life and so they go they change their majors three four five times they go to a liberal arts school they go to a private Catholic, private catholic liberal arts school right <laughs> and they rack up 30 40 fifty thousand dollars in debt for a sociology major for an anthropology major for a psychology major for a business major um and they get out to the only real to world learn, mm-hmm. only to learn that they want to be a stay at home mom. Yeah. Yeah. And only that, that was really what her vocation was. Um, obviously not every, every woman, but you know, um, you go into a lot of debt just to figure out that, Hey, maybe this isn't for me. Yeah. I mean, they, um, Gene actually, I think in one of his, one of his talks around the eighties or so. So this must've been going on for a really long time, but in the eighties, I think. Mm-hmm. He was saying that um, school has not become, or school has become uh, a right and not a privilege because, you know, back in his day, not everybody was going to school. You know, yeah. there was people going into trade and uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So um, who knows how long this has been going on? Well, and that's I, a, I don't know. That's the thing, right? It's like, I mean, you and I both are, um, I have, I have an associate's technically. I have the most worthless degree on paper, right? I have an associate's of general studies. Uh, well, that doesn't tell you that doesn't tell you that I went to an extremely well-priced, rigorous film school. Thank God, and that treated film like a trade, which I was very grateful for. And you yeah. just you, I know that you. What's your story, Rudy? You went to art school for a second, but then you just kind of started just working, right? Yeah, I uh, I entered into art school. It was one of the worst decisions I've ever made. 
So I'm a, I'm an art school dropout and uh, it feels pretty bad, but not really because <laughs> while I was going there, I went there for two years and uh, I had a pretty good scholarship. Mm-hmm. I was getting about 80% of it paid in California, in California for a really one of the, at the time, I'm not sure if it's still the same thing, but it was one of the best photography schools in the nation. Mm-hmm. And um, just in general for arts, like I think I went to art center. So um, I'm not sure if this is true, but I think it is. Um, they say that 70% of the cars or all of the cars, what's this? I think 70% of the cars were designed by people who went to art center. So they had a really great automotive program. Right. And at the time, maybe like in the nineties, they started waning down a little bit, but they, before that it was like one of the greatest commercial photography schools. So I decided to go there and uh, halfway through, I started thinking, wow, I'm, you know, my scholarship was only going to go in for two, for two years. And Mm -hmm. then I had to front everything else. And I was thinking, wow, um, I'm going to graduate with almost sixty, seventy thousand $70,000 worth of debt. And um, it's getting pretty hard to find work, uh, you know, yeah. like that's going to pay this off pretty quickly. And I started thinking, I don't know if I want to keep going and accrue all this debt. I was already like kind of, I had, I was already kind of scared of mm-hmm. going into debt. And so I said, no, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to leave and I'm going to try and find an internship and try and, and make it out that way because yeah. it's going to be silly if I graduate with all this debt and, you know, uh, have a hard time finding a job and that sort of thing. And sure enough, uh, you know, like a lot of the, my, my colleagues that went to school, they graduated, they went through the whole thing and they graduated with a massive amount of debt. and. I honestly think out of like maybe 20, 30 of the students, maybe like two or three are really successful. Yep. So I don't know, man. I don't know. I I think getting into debt is one of the worst things that you can do, especially like as a, like a trad guy, like it's going to set you back, man. It it set me back a lot of ways, like trying to pay things down. And then, I don't know. I think this is, I think this is the strain we should really stick on because, um, Again, I and I don't what what makes it all the more of a of a bad thing is that it's normal. Just as we ask like a like a fellow millennial, like, hey, where'd you go to school? Right? It's the average the average debt for uh for a twenty two year old graduate is thirty thousand dollars. It's probably gone up actually. It might be thirty five now or something. I think it's higher. Yeah. Yeah. And the what the average salary that you get out making at that age is about forty. I think it is. So. Yeah. And when we talk about that, that's school debt. That's easy to point to, but that doesn't talk about the fact that people, you know, you don't get disciplined on things like credit cards. You don't get disciplined on things like car loans, mm-hmm. um, all that kind of stuff. And I, I think I met, I met, I'll never forget this. I met a film theorist. I don't what's a film theorist, right? But they went to, they went to USC and they spent a hundred thousand dollars to get a degree that, with our emphasis in film theory, which essentially is, I think, a glorified film critic. And then we're That's working in the industry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it hurts me just to think so. But you see these metrics of it's like, well, why are millennials uh, putting off children, housing, all that kind of stuff? And I'm like, well, I mean, there's always like, so a lot of it is, of course, just, like personal um, priorities in life. But yeah, if, if someone goes to school or 
in your case, in the case of a lot of people, they go two years through school and they change their major. They go, yeah. wow, I really don't want to, you know, I thought it was going to be cool being a journalist. And it turns out actually like, I kind of really want to be a journalist. Um, well, you know, it's even worse when you're going to art school and people are, they go in for one thing and then they're like, oh yeah, actually I'm just going to throw away all my progress and I'm going to go into this other art field. I'm like, dude how like you're just these are the what was i what was i watching the other day it was like um it was it was dave ramsey actually i knew we were gonna get to dave ramsey you better he was talking yeah (laughs) (laughs) he was talking about um buying a house for the first time and the the person who called asked him Hey, I have this much money, and he he put he puts out you know his his whole status, and he says, and we're actually thinking about going through uh, purchasing the house through my aunt, and she sold one house before, and we're just gonna we're gonna keep it in the family, and and he had the best answer. He was mm-hmm. like, why would you set yourself up for failure like that? Because yeah. when you're buying a house, this is this is a major purchase. You're spending a lot of money. So mm-hmm. any margin of error, like if you're overpaying or if you're, I don't know if the house isn't really up to code or yeah. well, not to code. If the house isn't yeah. really like adequate and there's a lot of repairs to be done, that that small mistake can actually end up costing you like a lot of money down the road. Oh yeah. And it's the same thing with switching your, your major in art school. Like, why would you do that for something more worthless? <laughs> so I feel like, I feel like art school or the world of photography is the same in the world of film. So maybe you can, you get a light. So I've said this, right? Film, like, like photography, it's, it's an art, a science, a craft, but it's a trade. And for me, I've always said, if I lived out in Los Angeles with the same kind of desires to be a cinematographer as I am, I wouldn't have probably gone to school. I probably would have taken some classes, but I probably would have just at 16 started peeing on set, had my own camera by the time I was 17 and doing what all cinematographers are doing now, which is you get a little bit of gear and you just start doing stuff for your reel. So for me, I'm very grateful. I went to Colorado Film School, um, which was bundled with the Community College of Aurora, where I got my my gen ed in. And it was a two-year program and uh, and $10,000. And I'm very, very, very grateful for that because if I had gone, oh my gosh, that's precisely what it should be. Because if I had gone to say USC or uh, LA school of film, that was the first film I ever set foot in. I, lo- I wanted it so bad, right? I would have graduated with like 80, 90, hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. You know, I think at a certain point people were going to these sorts of schools because of the name, you know, the name carried a lot of, of gravitas. Yeah. And that's what sort of led me into going to that particular school but for me i guess it's like the best thing i ever got a film out of film school was my reel yeah i i'd never touched any of that camera equipment before i didn't even know like what raw was i'd never seen i fell in love with the canon dslr look because even that look was just so novel to me never seen the lighting the grippage everything coloring you forget it so for me that was the greatest thing and that's what i needed because nobody in film cares where you come from they just right. want to see your work, especially when you're behind the camera. They're like, okay, well, do you produce a good image or don't you produce a good image? It doesn't matter if you go to USC. They don't even touch the camera till you year three at USC, which means you could spend yeah. 
forty to eighty thousand dollars before. So is that the same with photography? Is yes. has the kind of the, the prestige of the name faded? Yeah, well, when I entered into the into the school, I was pretty surprised because we had a really advanced program at the high school that I went to. And uh basically how do I say this? I, I basically was in the photo room almost in my senior year, I was there like 80% of my time. So, yeah. uh, and then before that, like the years prior, I was, I was in at least two photo programs or two photo um, classes uh, every year. So I got to, I got to experience something that a lot of people don't. And actually it's, it's one of the, I don't know if it still is. I, one of the teachers left who founded it. So I think it kind of fell apart after that, but mm-hmm. it was a really special experience. And I got to play around with all kinds of mediums and, and, and everything. So when I got into art, art center, um, I was really disappointed because a lot of the stuff that we were learning, I had already learned, you yeah. know, and it was yeah. just, it was like, it felt like a waste of time, not to mention the academic classes. Um, I took a class once on, interpreting dreams and i think that was like a <laughs> general ed class and i'll never forget this class because we, it was like an advanced class and um the first day this teacher has this like esoteric sort of uh, explanation of what the class is going to be like and he sets up this great uh question he's like what if we could understand what dreams mean oh my god i think we're going to tackle it in this class flash forward a whole semester at the end of the class (laughs) he's like so yeah i hope you realize that we can't interpret dreams i'm like gee thanks bud like you could have told me that in the beginning of the class i would have dropped a thousand dollars please (laughs) (laughs) he like sticks out his hand (laughs) that'll be ten thousand (laughs) dollars dude i am i am i think that i I would never i have a friend or a coworker, i should say and he's going to Colorado film school right now but because it's covid they're not in class right (laughs) <laughs> so the hands-off approach is done and he already, he's working as, he's already working in the industry technically, right? Because he's at the AI studios. So I'm like, I keep telling him, I'm like, why do you want to go back? He's like, I don't know. Yeah. Like what happens if I don't? And I'm like, dude, when dude, my, very, my very <laughs> first gig ever was first AC, first assistant cameraman on a UCLA extension student film. This is essentially what I call the foreign born uh, UCLA kids student film. And I remember being like, okay, I'm going to learn real quick if UCLA's film program is more prestigious, learning more things, more professional than Colorado film schools. And I got mm-hmm. on that set and I realized, it turns out, uh, no, the answer was that, uh, that we're doing the same thing. There's not like a fast track program in the industry because it's all like a photography. It's all independent contracting unless you get in with a company doing something internally. So it's all about your portfolio. It's all about, okay, well, who do you know? What can you bring to the table? And uh, how, can we, how can we make this fish sing? And I'm astounded, astounded by how that mentality, we, it's easy for us because we're in the arts, but that mentality bleeds into plenty of other majors too. You know? Of course. Like I, the cool I, thing too is, is you, you ended up doing some uh, no film school stuff. <laughs> yeah, and, I, was, yeah. I used to read them religiously in school. And then it's funny that for three, four years, I worked for them. Thank God I worked with them, you know, pretty regularly hosted for them, edited for them, shot for them. I, my main cinema camera 
Black Magic Ursa Mini Pro great. I borrowed from them. So yeah, I mean, I'm very, very grateful to those guys too. Um, Gee, I mean, if if my children ever watch this video and God forbid they have an idea of wanting to be an artist, please don't do it. Yeah. Please, I'm begging so, you. So tell me, what do you think? Because I'm the same way. If my kid comes to me and said, I would, here's the thing. I would let my kid become a cinematographer. I'm going to grill them the same way my parents grilled me. My parents sat me down and said, how much does a cinematographer make? Do you work for somebody? What do you do? So I didn't enter film school being like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be the next Roger Deakins. By the end of film school, I was like, I'll do anything to survive. With a reason. <laughs> um, if my kid says they want to be an actor, I'm going to say no. Yeah. I'm, or I'll say this. I'll say, you know, find something solid. Because you could be the best actor in the world. But if you're not Spartacus, you're not going to be Spartacus. So it's easier, I think, with with cameras and lighting and really if you become a if you become a good gaffer or uh or an editor or something of that kind of sort i don't think it'll actually really go hungry because people can shoot their stuff no, they don't want to so edit either. it yeah but if a photographer you're being like no kid uh -uh, you're joining the no, it would be it would be a total mistake to mm. be a photographer and the one thing i didn't touch on is that um when i was going through this and deciding to go to school um, I took about a year off after high school and I was thinking about it, marinating on it. And, you know, I had all the pressures of the world telling me, Hey, you're going to be nothing if you don't go to school. Yeah. Yep. And I unfortunately bought into that. But, um, what was going on was at that particular moment in history, uh, digital cameras were becoming more accessible to people. It was actually, it was becoming commercially available. Mm. And so it's like the 5D market, era. Yeah. Even earlier than that, it was oh. like the, the rebel era. Gotcha. Yeah. The Canon rebel. I, I'm, I'm my webcam right now as a, as a rebel T3I. Yeah. They, <laughs> it was, this was back when the first rebel came out Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the night, you know, there's like a Nikon D series or something mm -hmm. like that, yeah. Um, yeah. which is obviously still available, but it, it's like the newest technology. Yeah. But um, these cameras were flooding the market and, and also uh, all of these new users were flooding the market. And so eventually it ended up being that um, marketing agencies or people who just needed photography in general, who needed a professional, they started to rely on these amateurs who could, honestly, most of them could do a pretty decent job mm -hmm. if they just set themselves to it. To it. Yeah. And, uh, and it, all of a sudden it just, it stopped paying really well. Mm, you know? yeah. Back in the nineties, when you were a commercial photographer, oh man, you could make 70, 80 grand a year. Yeah. If you were, if you were good, yeah. if you were, um, you know, uh, with an agency or something like that, you could easily put in 70, 80 grand. Mm -hmm. uh, but those were the film days. And yeah. so I, I didn't have enough foresight to see that that would, that would change the market. So. And, um, yeah, I, I made the mistake of going in there, but, um, the cool thing is that we've kind of touched on this already is that if you were interested in doing a trade, like photography, you know, and maybe you were doing film, I honestly, I would, if somebody said, I'm going to try film and they were going to be like a, a director of photography or, you know, do editing or something like that. I think there's more work for that than mm -hmm. there is for photography. So I would say, oh, that's, that's totally fine. Um, but where is I going with this? Um, 
anyway, so the, the market got flooded and I just didn't, I didn't have a, oh, this is where I was going for it. Um, I ended up taking an internship in New York and oh, wow. it wasn't my choice. It, it was just what was available. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I had left school and I was like experiencing just like extreme anxiety about my choices and everything. And I said, well, I can't just stop doing photography. This is what I've dedicated so much of my, my time to. And so I talked to a couple friends and I ended up moving out to New York for three months and uh, I didn't have a plan. I just knew that I wanted to be an intern somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, I go out there just on a whim and it's just a whirlwind. It's crazy. There's, it's just a completely different lifestyle that I wasn't used to. Mm-hmm. And I found out that the internships I was going for in the fashion industry, because I wanted to be a fashion photographer, (laughs) (laughs) um, they weren't working out. And I just, I kind of figured out on the way, the hard way that um, it just wasn't for me. Mm. And I had a buddy who got me an internship at this, uh, this magazine in New York. And sure enough, they started sending me out to shoot restaurants and food because New York has a really, it used to have a really big food, food scene. After COVID, right. I'm not sure. I've, I've heard that almost Ghost town. A, good, a good amount or just they're going to go out of business. Yeah. Uh, they just don't have anybody going there. So um, yeah, I started shooting food and uh, I didn't think too much about it. When I came back to the state, to California, I uh, started shooting food and doing commercial work with uh, with food. So mm-hmm did that, but you know, honestly, it's kind of winding down and I'm trying to figure out what the next move is because, uh, if we tie it back to, to being a Catholic guy, mm-hmm. uh, ideally you want to have your wife stay at home. Yeah. And I think, I think most trad girls are interested in that. Um, it's a little hard to do it here in California, obviously with the property, uh, costs and all that sort of thing. Right. So looking into a trade that I can take into a different state possibly and uh, do that. It's just hard to do that because a lot of my experience I've sank, I've sank into, into art. So, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's what I enjoy doing. I mean, that's, it's part of like, you know, binding books and that sort of thing. Like, <laughs> I mean, very good binding those, by the skittles. way oh thank you yes if if for our audience if you haven't uh seen uh rudy has oh my gosh i i think they're incredible i think they're therapeutic catholic asmr but uh rudy restores uh essentially hymnals missiles that sort of thing and this is the latest one saint joseph missile is that correct yeah this actually belonged to ashley's grandmother mm-hmm. ashley's my wife and um so this is from the 50s yeah and it was just falling apart and sitting in a, a glove box in Ashley's car. And I'm still getting, I'm still getting up to binding my 1800s Bible. Oh yes. The family Bible. Leo the 13th one. Yeah. That's the one. Um, I'm trying to work my, my courage up to that one and, uh, and bind it so that <laughs> we can actually use it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I would say, it's very hard to be an artist. And if my kids are watching this in the future, please don't be an artist, go into a trade or something, or maybe you'll be a doctor. Well, you know what it is? This is the, this is the difference. So I'm very grateful for my tenure in Los Angeles. I, I learned more about myself 
And I, I got to meet you. I know that, that's exactly <laughs> it. Uh, I was up, I was at uh, playing Scrabble with Jen and my parents today, and we we're talking about you know Jen's one step closer to becoming a full Coloradan. She her voter registration went through and everything, right? So it's just nice, of course. And you know, I was telling my nephew Aston, who's seven, about how when my dad, who helped me drive out here and unpack, went back home, uh, how I felt, how alone I felt, mm. and just how how you know, really for the first time in my life, how genuinely alone I felt. And how old is Aston, by the way? Seven, seven. seven. Like, okay, yeah, a little a little boisterous. Uh, so deep, why, deep conversation here. Well, you know, it's like when they're seven years old, they've hit the age of reason. And so they really yeah. begin to, you know, just kind of see the workings of things. And, yeah. you know, I I'd said, though, I was like, you know, I knew that. And so he said this. He said, you were sad because you didn't get to see me all the time, which was completely true. And I was like, that's true. But, you know, I don't regret any part of California. Uh, no big parts of California because I came back with Jen and I got to meet you and Anthony and everyone at St. Vitus. And honestly, there came a point where, I was praying to God. I was like, you know, I love cinematography, but I know that it's going to be hard to stay out here with my faith and just do the circuit. And I, I really feel drawn to family and as grateful as I am for my industry experience, it's a roller coaster, right? The average day on set is 12 to 14 hours. You can, you have to be willing on the drop of a hat, to go from Los Angeles to Canada or to Mexico or to Nevada or to any place in the union. Um, and you might be gone for a couple of days. You might be gone for a week. You might be gone for a month, uh, way longer than that. You might go to China, Taiwan. I don't care, like any place. And it's hard to kind of have a family structure if dad has to at the drop of a hat, do all these things. And it's hard to have a family structure when there's no benefits or looking to the future longer than a month, a week, something like that in place. So I've always said like, I think that film is a young man's game. And it doesn't surprise me that the vast majority of people I work with in film, men and women uh, are not married and don't have children. And I really began to notice that. I was like, wow, it's weird that my friends or the people I work with are in their thirties. And at this point you would think that, you know, you have a house and you have a wife and children and a legacy there are a lot of last ofs that you meet out in Los Angeles. You are going to meet people who are the literal end of their family line. Just, yeah. you know, is what it is. And I'm fine with that. Again, it's a lifestyle. I get it. Jen comes from the restaurant world. That's the same lifestyle, right? They're not, it's, it's a lifestyle that some people are called to do. I genuinely believe that. Um, and some people are not called to do. And I thought that I, I'm called for happy medium of both. That I was never going to be a local 600 DP. I'm naturally family oriented and I wanted something that was going to allow me to have my fulfillment of working in the industry, working with cameras and lighting and everything I love, and then also be able to come home and have a genuinely good marital and family life and have time for those sorts of things instead of having to kind of do a, a more delicate balancing act that you can do sometimes if you're, if you're in the rat race in, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm grateful for it. So I think, but here's the thing too, it's, it's, earlier it's like, you know, the artist lifestyle is hard. Um, I do think that there are more places now than ever before where you can be a filmmaker, you can be a photographer. It might take you a little more to fight for it, but you know, it's like there's, there's companies here in Colorado, there's companies everywhere. Like somebody needs internal video, somebody needs internal right. photographs, and they'll always will recommend you, even if you're just shooting like first communion pictures or something like that. Uh, yeah. You know? 
but what do you what what interests you trade wise besides the fact that uh that uh when this podcast becomes uh more dominant than uh when we surpass america magazine and become the uh the arm of the vatican uh of course that'll be our that'll be our ticket <laughs> uh, yeah if we if we live long enough and transhumanism is a thing oh my God, and we're like God. robots <laughs> yeah. and by then we'll have a a good pope <laughs> then we'll be we'll be part of the uh, the arm of the vatican making media for right. them <laughs> that's right um honestly i i've thought about it for a very long time and i can't really seem to get a a firm answer as to what the trade is going to be. I have sort of gotten to the point where I'm thinking it could be anything and it, it's probably going to be one of those things where I'm going to have to do it. And it's just, I'm going to have to try and not care about it too much. Yeah. You know, as long as it, it makes things work, but that's kind of dangerous. I think. I think it's a little dangerous because you might burn out or, you know, this is, happen, but this is the the yeah. great dilemma. I think also for like the trad band, because our orientation is to family and fatherhood in a very righted way. Of yeah. Um, and and this- doing, doing, doing matrimony in the, in the traditional church is completely different. You yeah. Know? Oh yeah. It's, it's definitely ordered to the way that you explained it just now, which is family life provider you're doing everything you can for your wife to to live out her vocation mm-hmm. and you living out your vocation as a man to provide yeah so it is it's 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 pretty big deal yeah and the fact of the matter is the world is or at least where we occupy it's hostile to family like yes. it's again los angeles is a, is a place i think that you, know, you look at you look at the fact that no housing gets built the zoning laws everything is oriented towards, you know, it, it costs you $1,800 for a 400 square foot studio in North Hollywood. Kind of hard to bring in two, three, four, five, six kids into the world, right? And then I, what, I, what I think is this catch 22 is that uh, it, it's one criticism of many criticisms that I do have of the church at large, because I don't think the church makes it very easy for, for people who are trying to live out their marital vocation as father and mother sometimes. By that, I mean, by that, I just mean to say like, well, I just mean like this, like Catholic school is expensive as sin. And and just like in the, in the secular world, how it's beaten into your face, like you have to send your kid to a four-year school, no matter what the Catholic church says, you have to send your kid to, you have to get your kid the proper Catholic education. Now there's been a forgetting on the church at large that there is the, the domestic church first and foremost, you know, Mm -hmm. but for a lot of us, yeah, it's like, you know, it's depending on where you're at, like it's hard to pay tuition, private school tuition fees uh, to send your kid to Catholic school. And then you find out later, right, that it's not even a good Catholic school. So your kids got the grades and then they completely lost the faith, which is what's happening right now. True. Yeah, um, they get scandalized or they're around a lot of um, a lot of people who a lot of kids who maybe don't have a stable family life. And- yeah, or no faith life. I mean, there are plenty of how many teachers, how many students in Catholic schools can do the whole routine and not have to hear a drop or even consider the faith whatsoever? I think it's a, I think it's a consequence of the nuns disappearing, right? Because a lot of orders were really oriented towards teaching. And I'm not saying like that's just like the fail-safe or the financial burden of, of Catholic education. But for the most of Catholic history, 
your your kids are kind of taught by the nuns or by the friars down the road or something like that. And then now it seems like Catholic education in some parts of the world, I should say, because there is traditional and classical education rising, but the costs still have to, you know, kind of come down a little bit, um, right. a lot. But it seems like now they've they're competing against the public school system or the private other private school system, the secular private schools, and it's just like a mess. And so you get a teacher in there at a Jesuit high school who's not living to the Catholic faith, and the church goes, okay, well that's a problem. And people go, well, how dare you? Like I made it through twelve years of Catholic school, never once had to open up eschatology or open up Thomas Aquinas or anything. So how who who are you to judge and all that kind of crap? It's, it's, um, it's a multifaceted battle too, because the other thing is the culture. So on, on one hand, you have um, maybe a poor example of a Catholic school and it's expensive, mm-hmm. but also in the culture, there isn't a lot being done to cultivate family life. As we've already discussed, like in the film world, um, for instance, for you, you, you realize that it was going to be very hard for you to be a family man and also do film to the the sort of degree where you would be successful. Yeah. You know, with all the traveling and that sort of thing. I think in the culture today, there isn't a lot of emphasis on family life or, um, or even really a, a structured family dynamic to the point where, you know, like black lives matter is against, the nuclear family. nuclear family, right? That's sort of the thing would actually save black culture. Yes, exactly. So there's a degeneration in in the way that the culture thinks about family, and there's a, a disconnect there. And so that's why you have uh, careers now that really don't provide um, a person with enough to actually, you know, make it so that they could feed their family and be successful. It, it, I, I obviously I'm not, I don't think I'm qualified to really go into detail about that sort of thing, but that's just an observation. And also it's an observation that I noticed that Pope, blessed Pope Pius IX um, mm-hmm. said in his encyclical that we're reading uh, Cassie Canubi, which is on chaste marriage. No. Um, he makes that example. And that was written when was that, Jordan? That was like um, this is in the this thirties or twenties. This is in the uh, well. It's it's before Pius the tenth, so I think it's actually okay. written in either the extreme early nineteen hundreds or the yeah probably extreme early nineteen hundreds because he comes Pius the ninth comes after Leo the thirteenth, if I remember correctly. Yeah, let me see here. I, I have uh, it up here. Yeah, I was going to say it was written in December nineteen thirty. Okay, Sean. Okay, there you go. And anyone who's any any guy or or a lady who's discerning marriage, um, this is, I would I would recommend you read that one. That's pretty yeah, good. It's yeah. it's easy to read too. Um, some encyclicals are not. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, uh, we were talking about JP two, and and I think you asked me if I had a JP two encyclical, and I said, yeah, I have one on on work, but every time I crack it open, I have no idea what I'm reading. That's just like I, um, what's the one? It, it's uh, on modernism by Pope, mm-hmm. Pope Pius X. I cracked that one open. I've tried three times to read it. And I get to like the third chapter. I'm like, well, this is, what am I reading? You had a good point because as much as I love, I love traditional Catholicism, obviously. But what people have to understand too is like traditional, like our ancestors, which are just really our grandparents, uh, 
being traditional Catholic just meant being Catholic. Like encyclicals as we think of them, particularly from the last uh, three popes, um, weren't really that widespread. You know what I mean? Like they were, they were, <laughs> they were essentially just affirmations and reaffirmations of, of and synthesis of church teachings, which sometimes could be very good for the common man, a Cassie Kenubi. And other times you're like, like it's like one's on work and stuff. It's like, okay, that's really good. But for the most, like your average, like working, you're like, okay, like I, I get it. Like the church, you know, don't exploit your workers. Socialism is the big gay. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, but man, uh, I find, and of course, like I, I tried, I remember when I tried to give the fair shake, right? I've read a little bit of, of Tutti Frutti. Uh, I've read a little, oh, I'm sorry, Fratelli Tutti. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, every time I think that's the new one, by the way. uh, That's the new one. It's don't if you if you live your entire life reading it, you probably will be better of a Catholic for it. I'm just gonna say that flatly. It's not written for it's not written for Catholics, obviously. Um, It's like a that's a test on on how how far your limits of patience can go. God is is using it. If you get through it, you're a saint. Yeah, it's like on modernism, right? It's a very like it's a very um, because it's it's not a very it's what? It's a good one, but it's hard to read. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think, I think a lot of it, it's so, it, it's not a very pragmatic one, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's very academic. Yeah, and that's okay. So, like, honestly, I like the concept of the Vatican being academic like that. And then letting of course, different bishops yeah. and priests. Compared to now. Compared yeah. to now. Um, I do like Pope Benedict. I've only read one of his encyclicals. Benedicts are good, yeah. And it's, it's on love. I'm, I'm looking, oh, here it is. Hang on one second. Oh, yeah. Deus caritas est. Oh, I'm sorry. God is love. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is just a, this is a great one. If you're really, I think it, it's a good one. Yeah. Deus caritas est. If you are looking for authentic Christian marriage and Christian understanding of love, I mean, Benedict, I think is a very good theologian, obviously. And I, I think mm-hmm. this one, this one was uber helpful for me. Um, let me ask you this question because I, I think that we're kind of skirting it, not skirting it, but talking about it a little bit, but you know, in this culture that's hostile to family, um, I don't know if you've ever like listened to uh, like Tucker Carlson sat down with Ben Shapiro on the Sunday special. You ever heard that one? Um, no, I haven't. Is it new? No, it's 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 older now. But what's funny mm-hmm. is that Tucker Tucker represents right now the the social conservative in a way that I think other parts of the political spectrum have kind of forgotten. So you know, we talk about the free market and how good the free market is and everything. Um, mm-hmm. But one downside we need to talk about, just honestly, is is the pursuit of worldly pleasures making us happier? Is the march of technology and progress and our pockets and the world's pockets being lifted out of poverty actually creating, it's creating healthier people in one way, but is it creating happier people? Um, and it's not, it's not an argument for socialism, far from it, but someone like Tucker Carlson says, you know, the problem is that what, what the, say, the Trump populist gets and the, the Bernie Sanders socialist gets is that average in this in this country isn't what it used to be your purchasing power has gone down significantly and so you know the you know the american dream of just like it's kind of nice to have like a house and you know a little lawn and some kids and a car and all that kind of stuff um it's not impossible obviously not but in terms of purchasing power it has become more difficult uh yeah the average income in the United States of America for a household is $50,000 approximately. 
um, which stretches some places way better than others. Um, yes. You know, and so it's kind of like crazy that, and he talks about like, you know, you get guys on like Andrew Yang, it talks a lot about um, the march of technology and how that we're just all destined to essentially be beat out by robots. Um, I don't know if that's true or not true. I tend not to think so because, you know, we're kind of a far way off, but um, Tucker said something that to a, to a Republican conservative guy sounds radical. And he was like, if I was, if I was in, if I was president, I could do whatever I want. I would shut down the automation of truckers, you know, Ben Shapiro's, you know, free market brain kind of popped off. But Tucker said, here's the thing. Um, trucking is the largest employer of non-college educated men in this country. And so if you just say, learn to code essentially to your largest subsection, if you screw them over, it's not the societal ills that are born from that, right? The hollowing out that happens in the places like the Rust Belt and all these other places just become exemplified. And so mm-hmm. there's an obligation of a society, of a good society, not just to allow their citizens to pursue um, satisfaction economically, financially, phys- uh, physically, spiritually, in the way that, that, that they might see fit, but it's, it really is for the protection of the family unit. And part of the family unit is the fact that you don't want to say, uh, well, it's great that uh, you know, there's so many women in the workplace if... Uh, if that workplace participation really boils down to secretaries and pencil pushers and these sorts of things instead of, and and using that as like a crux against family essentially. And I was like, that's a very, very compelling thing because I think that's where we're at in, in our, in our current times. Right. Um, Trump talked about like, you know, this is, this is great on low unemployment for African-Americans. I was like, that's good. Low unemployment for, for Asians, for Hispanics. I said, this is all very good. Uh, He said, lowest unemployment rate for women ever. And I said, well that might be bad like i mean it could be bad potentially could be bad like i mean i think a woman should be able of course to do what she wants to do but also like um gk chesterton says uh women said they would not be dictated to then promptly became stenographers and there's enough vice and huffington post and slate articles of all these like bloggers living in new york you know and they're paying two thousand dollars for an apartment and they're forty thousand dollars in in debt for a journalism degree, eighty thousand from Vanderbilt or someplace. And I'm like, this is making you happy. This is supposed to be like the feminist mantra realized. Like a single apartment alone, no possessions, no like families far away back in Kentucky, and you hate them because their politics are so like anti-progressive and everything. And like you turn into a Marxist in school, and now this is happiness. Well, it's funny that you touched on that. I was talking to Ashley earlier today. Probably a good um, thing to talk to your wife from time to time. I don't know how we trad that is, though, honestly. Yeah, we weren't specifically talking about that, but something you said just kind of uh, lit a little light in my head. Um, there's, a, there's a trend, and I don't know if you've noticed this before. Um, I, think, I think people have noticed enough where it's become a meme. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of... There's a lot of younger people, uh, guys and girls, who talk a lot about like their anxiety, right? Yeah. People are saying like, oh, I have crippling anxiety and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if it's not because they aren't experiencing life as it's supposed to be lived, right? Like yeah. man and woman come together and form a family unit. And the family is the nucleus. It's the cell of society. And because there's a disconnect there in our, in our culture today, 
I think a lot of people feel disenfranchised and depressed because they're living in, like you said, in like a tiny closet in New York. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, when I was living in New York for three months, I was living in um, a really nice area and I was paying $800 for basically like half of a room, which is like the size of a bathroom. Right. I was going to say. Yeah. And uh, I can tell you, I wasn't happy because I was sharing that room with another person. So Really? The ha- yeah, okay. So, sure enough. So $800 to share a bedroom in New York. And I mean, let's, let's, exp- let's expand it out of New York, even if you're living in LA, which is, I think, maybe a little less expensive. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you got three quarters of a room. You don't have much, man. And I think people feel depressed because they're not living out their vocation. Yeah. They don't have an idea of what their vocation is anymore. Yeah. Um, it's good. And I think, I think, I think I have to say this because who knows, we might encounter somebody who's not Catholic or something. Um, but it's good to be, it's good to be a wife. It's good to have children. Yeah. It's good to raise them. It's good to be a father. It's good to, to go out to work and provide for your family and, um, and be a martyr for your family. Mm. That's a good thing. You know, that's something that you should look forward to because that's the way that God made it. You know what we've done and we're doing this in pre-cana right now and our priest is very, very good. But one of the things that he talks about is uh, dismantling feminism. Mm-hmm. And so I'll say from this is kind of strange because I, I meet a lot of women I've, and especially as, as traditional Catholics, it's really nice for the first time in my life to meet women who say what they want to do is they want to be moms. And we have, as a society, we have pushed motherhood to the fringe of society. Like we've, we've said that killing your baby is virtuous, that mm-hmm. picking your career over family is a good thing, that uh, men need women like a fish needs a bicycle. And it's funny because one thing that uh, our priest told us was, if you look at what's happening now, people are realizing all the lies that our 50, 60 years of the sexual de- devolution and feminism has told us men and women are not equal and their, their requirements of happiness are, are different. Um, women are more social and, so, and nurturing and maternal. And so therefore, there is this great pride. And it's something that even in, in fatherhood, even in paternity, that, that we don't get the depth of because we don't you know, carry a child for nine months. But there are, there are millions of women who do have career, or do have, uh, who went to careers, right? Did the whole school route. And to your earlier point, they became a mom and they suddenly did not want to go back to work. Uh, I should talk more about Dave Ramsey later, but you know, he gets calls all the time, which is like, well, uh, I'm a, st- I'm a, st- you know, I'm a stay at home mom. I'm a homemaker. And uh, I, I have this X amount of debt thing. I didn't really like, think this is what I wanted to do, but I looked at that kid and I was like, I'm, I don't want to leave him ever. Um, and this yeah. is where I want to be. And, you know, for me, it's like kind of looking at society and how everything has gone away. We are alone because we've, we've told people for generations that family doesn't bring you happiness, that career and the pursuit of yourself and whatever interests you want to do, as long as it's not built to an eternal concept like family, that's what makes you happy. And so, yeah, there are people who now are in their 30s or in any age. And, you know, family for them is just mom and dad and brother and crazy aunt Liz. And they come around every Thanksgiving, but otherwise not, they go back and they have an apartment or they're cohabitating with somebody. And this is a second, third boyfriend, girlfriend, 
right? Bouncing from relationship to relationship. And if they, and they go back on Facebook, Instagram, and they see that that one girl from high school got married at 22 and now she has a kid and she seems, they seem like, you know, it's their struggles, but heck, you know, they have a house. That's kind of nice. And it's not just about the materials, but like she, they have, she has somebody that's her husband and he has somebody that's his wife and they can confide in each other. And what I was going to say is in the 1970s, if you look at movies, literature, anything from the 1970s, the divorced woman is powerful, you know, and you know, she can push aside her kids and push aside her husband and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. And, you know, and so you get these, like these dramas, like the husband and the wife are divorced and the kid has to kind of just like kind of choose, but look, it's not a big deal. This is what happens in 2020. There is no uh, illusion about the goodness of a broken family. It's all bad. And so if you see art culture media about divorce, about broken families nowadays, written by the generation that grew up in a single parent household, it's all bad. There's this yeah. understanding amongst everybody that, and it's statistically proven that mother and father being together help in so many ways. And that, that there's nothing wrong with a woman saying that, you know, my vocation is motherhood and it's not a dirty word anymore. And I think it's great that we find so many women, there are women in our lives, obviously, but certainly there are more women who are more likely to step out and go, you know, no, I think being a mom's great. I think it's awesome. You know, I didn't fail the sisterhood by not going to college. I'm not stupid, obviously. Like being a mom, being a wife is extremely difficult. Like a woman has to put up with you and has to put up with me for the rest of her days. Yeah. And then also and love us children. so much. Yeah. And children. And, um, and, take care of the house. Look, taking care of the house. I think people have this idea that it's like an easy thing to be a stay at home parent, but it's, it's really not, you have, this is, this is your domain, you know, and you have to, there's, there's all kinds of things to do really. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you're at this rate, but I'm at the point cause um, you're obviously married and fatherhood is just around the corner. I'm going to be married soon. God willing. I know. God willing. Yeah. Just remember the name of Jordan. That's all I need. <laughs> but I'm at the point where I, I learned this from Gavin McInnes. He, he said in an interview, I think with Tucker Carlson, again, like on his, on one of his older shows, he was like, I don't I love this- Tucker, man. He's so cool. He's so, I mean, I think that, I think that he represents a much needed voice, like the last of the traditional wasps, if you will, like the last of, of an American spirit that's long been kind of killed. I don't, I don't want to throw you off too much from your point, but have you seen the video of Tucker? Um, he's fishing in like, uh huh. And that guy comes up to him. Uh huh. Yeah. And he's like, Hey, what are you doing? Yeah. He comes up and Tucker's like, why are you filming me? Uh He's like, cause I can. He's like, no, no, no. I'm just wondering. I'm not trying to infringe your right. I just, I'm wondering why you're filming me. And it turns into this like really wholesome conversation. Mm -hmm. Tucker's a nice guy. He's a really good guy. Well, you know what he represents is he's, he, I, I think that again, I like what I like about him is that he is a representation of, social conservatism just traditionalism right like tucker's what everyone's dad feels like in a way right and what he said is this he you know tucker grew up as a wasp right he was he was the white anglo-saxon protestant high church episcopalians he sent his kids to episcopal school all that kind of stuff right like this is an old breed of americanism uh and he woke up and he said you have to understand like i'm from the class of people you know, they used to say in his age, they were like, you know, anyone who was like white Anglo-Saxon Protestant was just called a Republican. And that's not true anymore. Mm-hmm. And these people 
who are now the 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 elites as you talk because you know he's like look i come from the elites of course i do like i know where my house is some of my kids to these schools like it's not like a surprise but what he makes a difference is that once upon a time there was this obligation not to quench the little man you needed the little man still and he's like these people really do think you're stupid they really do think that you going to church every sunday with your five catholic kids in tow and you voting for Donald Trump and you wanting to make America great and all this other kind of crap is stupid. And you, and, and when the media or anybody says, uh, not uh, uneducated, right? Not college educated people. I'm like, God bless them because at least they have their heads still on their shoulders. At least they didn't go to school to become Marxists. And he said, he's like, look, this is what happened. He's like, look, this is what I'm realizing for like my own kids. This is what I'm realizing for everyone around me in the neighborhood. You know, the Republicans all disappeared. The conservatives all disappeared. And to hear them talk about, you know, even, even it, it, ex- it exists even in our own, as, as conservatives, it exists even in our own speech, right? When we want to sound like somebody who's uneducated or backwards, we immediately slip into a Southern accent and put a banjo on our knee, right? Because this person <laughs> is supposed to be the uneducated last vast of America that doesn't exist. And I think that Tucker has a very good beat on that. Um, I'm, I'm very grateful to his, his, to his insight. And um, something I was just going to say just a little bit earlier uh, is that it, it seems to me like, like things are kind of slowly turning back because things have gotten so decayed and decrepit. But also, um, the last of that era is just shaking their freaking fists wherever they can, tearing down the whole walls. And it's nice to kind of see, it's nice to see like, it's nice to see a, an ACB take the place of RBG, you know, that feels like such an antithesis and you realize their hatred because I thought it was feminist to be able to have, like, she has both. She got the kids and the career. Like we all have to kind of make a sacrifice. Interesting how they turned on her like that. You know? Oh yeah. Um, This is, this is a woman who, like you just said, who has it all. And um, for the people for the people now who, who, you know, who want that, they think that, that she's a bad person. Yeah. But it's because she's conservative. The and because dogma lives loudly within you. It, it's because they know that she's not going to play along with the sorts of ideas yeah. that maybe RBG did. It's, it's because she's a, she's a real Catholic because she acts upon it. And one thing about her, one thing I, I mean, I, I have a, I have a, an, a, uh, a, a, I think it's a it's a respectful crush on her, uh, but Jen, without any, I know no I'm just playing I'm just playing Jen would man Jen's gonna like burst to a wall, but what I just mean to say is this like well I have a crush on Dan Crenshaw <laughs> I have a crush that, on Dan Crenshaw that rhino <laughs> oh is he really rhino yeah he's oh. a rhino oh get to I don't him. like Dan Crenshaw oh I like how he looks I I do like he looks politicians cool. I'll give you that. He looks yeah. like a superhero. Yeah, he looks like a. But what I was gonna say is this: during her hearing, you know, I can't tell. I can't tell you this. She talked about her and Jesse, her and her husband, and their decision, like that cohesive family unit. Like she, you can tell for her that family is the most important thing. Oh yeah. You know, like just she. Yeah. Like it's not just having seven kids. It's just how she speaks about family, and how nice it is because there's so many times in politics where family isn't the most important things in our own lives, like. You know, you meet people all the time where it's like family's just a side note. You know, the thing you come home to, it's nice, but it's not a vocation. And so I think that for the left, one thing that was so shocking to them, that why they never mind their hatred of abortion and thinking that she's got, oh, she's going to apparently take away contraception and 
all the kind of stuff. And I'm like, I mean, she can be as papist as she wants, you know, but, <laughs> but watching her, I was like, I was like, wow, these people hate her because she is a complete F you to the sexual devolution to the, to the feminist movement. She, yeah. you were, you were supposed to pick between being a, and you were supposed to hate being a mom of seven. And you, you left that, you took that up instead of being a Supreme court. That's what the narrative is supposed to say. And said, she goes, yeah, I can do this. Like I'm used to being in a, I'm used to being in a group of nine is what she says. And you're like, that's not easy. That's a real, that's real courage, real strength in an era where everybody's so brave, stunning, much. Wow. Everything that's real, like real, like that's real feminine genius. Um, I think also too, it might be easier because our children are a little bit older. If I remember correctly, I think most of them are, well, maybe no, not. no, no, they're not. That's no, no, the, no, and, there's a lot of young kids. And one of them actually, is special yeah. needs. So yeah. Yeah. You know, so if she can do it, anybody can. No. Yeah. I mean, no. <laughs> I mean, but, but you know, what's nice is this, right? Because family has been so divorced in our life that being a traditional Catholic, what's nice is like going to mass and seeing kids and seeing normal it's people, awesome. normal people just trying to figure it out. Like, yeah. you know, we both are, we both come from like, well, let's see, um, you know, oh, I guess our, our backgrounds are a little different in terms of upbringing. Um, in terms of like, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, right? I come from gentlemen farmers. Uh, I think your family's a little more work, working class. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, right. But to be a traditional Catholic, you kind of see the whole spread of the empire trying to figure it out. Like St. Vitus has like the top actors and that sort of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And then it has like working class people with like two, three, four, five, six kids. Like, just being like, what the heck are we doing? We're doing it for the Lord. Uh, and I love that. I think that, this great division in society about the 1% or the elite or whatever, part of the reason it's that this Marxist breakdown, because in reality, a good empire is that you say there is going to be a noble class, but the nobles can't ever be divorced from, from your, your citizenry. And so it makes a lot of sense. If you're going to be elite, you better, like, I think about this with film all the time. What I love about the top film guys, there's a lot of very, very genius directors and cinematographers. But like I met Roger Deakins and got to talk to Roger Deakins and you're like, oh, he's just one of the, like, he just made it, but he's normal. I've met a lot of the 1%. I've worked for them. I've shot for them. And it's funny watching the guys at Goodyear Company, the very successful multi-million dollar company, they're car guys. They'll talk about cars to the blue in the face. It's not about money. I mean, money's important. Sure. I mean, these cars are works of art, but they love just talking about cars. They know everything. These people who have way more money than I'll ever see. And that obligation, I think, is just being so attacked that, that rich and poor don't need each other. That really, if you're rich, it's immoral, right? The billionaire class is immoral or wanting to make a better life for you and your family is immoral or something like that. It's so backwards. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's well, a... The only thing I can think of now is how fulfilling that's going to be to be a father and um, how fulfilling it's going to be for Ashley. Cause I know that she wants to be a mother also. And I just know from like the depths of my heart, I know that this is what God planned for us. And I, I think also God planned for you Yeah. and you and Jen, I mean, us who, who are going to be married 
we have a lot of friends who are getting married now. So it's, right. it's really cool. Mm-hmm. And as to how many children we, we get blessed with, I don't know. But I think of one of our, our close family friends who, who adopted us from uh, St. Vitus. And um, she was explaining to us about, it's a big, it's a big family, you know, I think there's seven, seven of them. Mm. So um, she was telling us that there was a time where she started to worry, you know, she had a kid on the way and she was thinking, well, you know, it's going to be her sixth or seventh kid and yeah. it's going to be kind of hard, but obviously you got to do everything you can, you know, don't just, sit on your sit on your behind and not work and Um, everything but she told us that you know god if god blesses you with a child he's also going to (laughs) provide you know (laughs) and and sure enough she told us that after the child was born that um they just they got by Mm. and obviously it was stressful you know stressful to having one kid stressful have that sort of pressure but yeah, I mean, when you have when you have a great faith and and you realize that a child is a gift from God, of course, mm. of course, God has the opportunity to provide for you. You know, obviously, if you're like looking for work and doing the best you can, right? And I don't think there's a a perfect situation too where it's always going to be a single income family. Um, there's occasions where maybe you're not called to live out in a cheaper part of the the States, you know, maybe you're called to stay here in California mm. and your wife happens to be a lawyer or work somewhere else. As long as you have the intention of living out your vocation mm-hmm. of, of placing your, your family and your home at the top of your list and you get everything done. I don't see why not. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, again, like there are, you know, I, I think that what we're trying to do is we're trying to reclaim the culture. I want to live in a culture where it is like the norm and economically it's the norm to live in a, in a single uh, stream of income household, right? Where, where your wife staying home is something that's just kind of a, the natural thing if she desires that you desire, you decide as a couple, depends on what you're doing, right? Um, you know, instead of something that's like, okay, well, you know, we kind of have to both get out there and schlep it for a second. Yeah. And, and I think that that helps so much with headship, certainly. I think it helps so much with just kind of determining um, each other's strengths and weaknesses and in each other's really honest vocations. Um, and what's nice about that now, of course, again, um, that's, that's a good culture to bring about. Um, because what we've done now in this culture, and again, I'm not saying like it's sinful or demonic that women are working, obviously not. Um, I can't think of where nurses or teachers would be without women. So, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say this, it's what we've done is we've made marriage and we've made children a commodity. Yes. And we've completely destroyed of the fundamental building block of civilization, which is the family unit. And we now have all these effects of what happens when, and I see this all the time, right? It's like mom and dad are working. And so the kid just stays with the nanny all the time and they grow up with some form of mom and dad, but not really the proper kind of orientation of what it means. And for me, like, you know, I'm looking, I, I am looking 
very much forward to marriage. I'm looking very much forward to fatherhood. Um, there are a lot of. Too, I want to see that. I want to see that on you. I know. I want. I want to see that on you, and I want to be. There I is, can't wait. <laughs> there is one day that um, you must have been taking care of somebody's kids, but there was uh, there was a day where you were at mass with Jen, and there was two oh those three kids yeah with you. Uh-huh. three two or three yeah. kids with you, and I yeah. saw that, and I. It's like one of those moments where you're supposed to be paying attention in mass, but you kind of like you you get caught on looking at something and you're like, whoa, and you start thinking about it. And I saw that and I said, Jordan's going to be a great dad. Like, <laughs> oh. see that. I think actually when I looked over, you were like explaining to the kid. Uh-huh. Well, let me. <laughs> I was, going, I was like, me, wow, that's like dad mode right I there. use my nephew as my guinea pig because, and I tell this to Jen, and let me tell you, you know this, you know, especially now in your married life, but for Jen and I, one of the highest compliments, like one of the highest affections we've started giving each other just in the natural progression relationship is like, like when Jen looks at me and she says, like, I cannot wait to be the mother of your children. Wow. And I'm like, good good feeling. Wow. I'm like, you know, I I tell her all the time, like, look, I cannot wait for you to be my wife. Oh, well, she tells me, I, can't, I cannot wait for you to be the father of our children. I say, I cannot wait for you to be the mother of my children, I should say. Um, <laughs> and, and, that's, and I was just in the car today, and I figured that, like, I was out here with a lot of my coworkers are married men with, with children. I've met their, some of their wives and some of the kids. And um, one has a, uh, he has four daughters spread from 10 years old down to two. And they're absolutely adorable. And it's nice because the nicest thing is this. In Los Angeles, on set, I can't tell you how many freaking pictures of like dogs and cats and pets I've looked at. And it's nice. It's nice that that energy is properly oriented when people want to talk about their kids. And when they have kids, like they don't shut up about the kids. And I love it. I'm always like, hey, I was like, how's your daughter doing here? Like, what's going on here? And they'll, people will they, they beam with pride. And it's stressful. Like I have a friend, he has a newborn baby. And, you know, him and his wife, therefore, are not sleeping, you know? Yeah. And you can yeah. tell, like, that's stressful. That's hard. Like, parenthood is hard. Fatherhood's hard. Motherhood's hard. But you can tell they wouldn't trade that for the world, yeah. you know? And I, I really, it's so funny how, because Jen is my vocation, my future, and I now see what that means, how I can tell that I've been preparing also for what fatherhood means. Because I've always liked kids, you know? Like I really have genuinely liked kids, but like now I'm like, I can't wait to have kids. And like, I'm like, I'm going to tell them this, like, I'm going to show them this. I can't wait to teach my sons and my daughters, like how to clean a rifle. I can't wait to take a fishing. (laughs) I love like with my nephew, like he was feeling sad today. Right. And he's, we went, I pulled him aside into his room and I was like, well, what's wrong? You know? And he's explaining to me. And I said, you know, listen, first off, like, it's okay to be sad. I don't want you like, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to have him. It's okay to be upset. You know? And so I gave him some tissues. I just sat with him and I was like, I got to remember this for my kids. But I really think it's exciting how God lets us play such a grand part in his divine plan for souls that we can actually, just as he is our father, that we can have the imprint of that fatherhood on our own children. Like I can't, I really can't wait. And I can't wait to be bouncing ideas off of you because, uh, uh, your kids are gonna come before mine, so I can't wait to be like, "Hey, Rudy, what's what do you what do you think?" <laughs> well, I, I imagine they're gonna be a year older, so I don't know how many. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but you'll be you'll be I'll be like um, taking notes from you. You'll tell me the sleep patterns, what to expect, all that kind of stuff. You know. 
I got to tell you, I mean, I, I, I come from a, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I come from a pretty broken family and, yeah. I, you know, I have, I've had my dad in my life sort of, mm-hmm. um, but I, I don't think I had a normal upbringing to the point where I feel like I'm comfortable, um, like saying, I'm going to be this kind of dad. I'm going to be this kind of dad. And I, yeah. I've actually thought about this before and I'm curious as to what you think um, for your own, for your own family life, but what kind of father are you going to be? Mm. Like for me, my father, to the degree that he's still around in my life, um, it's different. But when I was growing up, he was very authoritarian. Yeah. Um, and there was, there's good things to it and bad things to it. Um, I don't really know much about my dad. Mm. Um, other than what he does and like, you know, how he started doing that and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, which is the bad, but the good thing is that because he was authoritarian and really didn't give me a lot of time to just kind of do my own thing, he got me working really quickly. You know, I started working when I was 10 and so he was an upholsterer. He still is. Mm. And, um, and so he had me working in his upholstery shop. So instead of having downtime and watching TV and that sort of thing, enjoying cool. um, summer breaks and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. I was working in a, a, an upholstery shop and getting my knuckles all bloody and <laughs> like ripping off old fabric off of, if right. you don't know what upholstery is, it's like one of the, one of the original crafts. Like, uh-huh. uh, That's right. Um, where you restore furniture and that sort of thing. So, you know, I was working, and um, that explains a lot about your restoration of projects by the way well yeah yeah i mean that that's that's also why i went into photography is because i i like to make things Mm. um but yeah the the bad thing is that i i feel like when i'm gonna raise kids that's probably gonna come out because you know you you by default go back to the way that you were raised and Mm. you think that's the way that you're going to raise your kids, right? Like that's what worked for me. Therefore I'm going to do it that way. Mm-hmm. And I just think, I think I have to like be very careful with that because there were times where that wasn't really the greatest thing. And it actually pushed me to do things that were more rebellious, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So I don't know. I'm curious, like what, what kind of father do you think you're going to be? But also, um, all the more if you're experiencing something similar to what I just told you, um, if whatever viewer is out there, um, it really helps to be in a traditional parish because when you're sitting there in mass, obviously you have to, you have to be present and you have to um, participate in the mass as much as you're able to. Um, but there's a lot of families there. Yeah. And um there's a couple, there's a couple fathers that I, I admire from a distance. I don't think I've ever told them, but (laughs) I I observe what they're doing and I'm taking notes. Yeah. And it it helps. It really helps to be in a traditional parish that has and fosters the family life like St. Vitus. You can no doubt you, your, your parish is cool. Oh man. I like, I, I mean, when I say note taking, I mean, I, I, especially the guys in my office, right. A lot of them are good Catholics. And so I ask them, I'm like, you know, especially like um, one of my, one of my coworkers there, again, his, with his four daughters, I'm like, how do you balance that 
and a marriage, right? Because I can tell this, uh, I'll get to what kind of father I am. First off, I want only sons. And this is why. Because A, not just because <laughs> girls are more trouble, <laughs> but because I know like I have such a soft spot in my heart for if I have daughters. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I, I can, Jen, Jen's one that told me first. She was like, she was like, you'd be such a good girl, dad. And I was like, you would. <laughs> but so it's, nice. it would rip your heart out. I well, think. the moment they hit 13, it's all over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the moment they start bringing boys around. Okay, so I think I want to address one thing you said earlier. And I think that it's true that your influence that you get first and foremost is, is your own father because that's father to you, literally. And I think that some people, they kind of embrace parts of those and then they, or they reject like wholesale some other swaths, you know? So mm-hmm. I wonder if, if parts of how you'll be a father also expresses itself in how you are in, in marriage as well, is what I always wonder. Like, I'm a kind of guy like, I, and also the second thing is that it's, it's, it's temperaments as well. So we just learned about the four temperaments in pre-cana, uber important. Mm-hmm. I'm sanguine choleric, Jen is choleric melancholic. And so what that essentially means is like my, as head of the household, my kind of style, the way that I, I do it in my cinematography work is like, I don't, I don't like to just be an authoritarian and just like push things all the time, my way of the highway. I'd much rather put people in place who are competent at their job and let them do competent things, right? So I can tell like my fatherhood style, the way that I see it, the way I try to express it with my nephew is like, I don't want to just say my way or the highway, suck it up buttercup without giving them like a fair kind of trial first. I'll still make the decision because that's my car side. Like I'll be like, look, this is the way. Right. Of course, this is the way. I've always said that in our household for our kids, there's going to be really two big commandments. And the first one is that in this household, we honor Christ and his church. And if you want to live in a way that's contrary to that, that's perfectly fine, but you will not live that way in this household. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is that your mother is my wife and queen of this household. And you can do a lot of things you cannot talk back to your mother. That'll bring me in uber quick. Um, And so I think that part of me is like, at the same time, like I look forward to a lot of the growing pain activities that you do with your children because without like being an authoritarian, like, and that's how I kind of try to do things with my nephew. Like I want my kids to learn the lessons that, that I learned but it wasn't quite the same way with my dad. My, my dad, um, my dad's a, he's a senior analyst in nuclear weapons for the federal government. Uh, he was a spy is what I call him, but he, he audited nuclear programs. Um, my dad never really like wrestled with us. Uh, we went fishing on occasion, that sort of thing. Now that I'm in my twenties, I have a whole kind of cooler, more, I'd say uh, engaged relationship with my dad. My dad was a very good father, very good provider and, and very good about teaching me the faith. Um, I'm going to That's take the most important thing. Most important thing. What yeah. I'm going to do is I want to, I want to really, I want to, you know, I want my kids to know that I am a pillar that they can lean on as well. So I want to do activities with my kids. I look forward to, I look forward to teaching my sons and my daughters how to shoot a gun. And I, I look forward to taking them fishing. And because Jen comes from a broken household, one thing that she's told me, and she doesn't really have a relationship with her father, you know? And for her, she was like, look, the man that I want to marry, I wanted him to have those qualities of good fatherhood because I didn't get that. And what I've realized is that, especially in regards to daughters, which is why I think that her saying that I'd be a good girl dad is such a high compliment. Because what I realized is that coming from a broken household, how much difficulty that causes. If does, your perception, 
I mean, you know this better than I do, but if your perception of fatherhood is warped in some capacity or is absent, that makes it all the more difficult, it seems, in your spiritual life to cling to God as father. Because your sense of father is lays out the door. So what, what does it mean, you know? That's certainly been right. Jen's experience. Um, and so for me, like, I've realized, like, the way that you discipline your sons, the way that you talk to your sons is uber important. Because I don't want to just be the hammer and sickle. I'll bring down the law, but I also want them to be like, look, like, I taught you how to do right. I want you to spread your own wings and fly. And also, like, I'm training young men here. For daughters, especially, like, you as father are their, their first and foremost understanding of how masculine energy and how masculine touch, especially, should be exhibited. So you train your daughters, you teach your daughters, you instruct your daughters by your own example, how to pick good husbands, how not to bring losers home in, in high school or whatever, you know, no doubt there'll be one or two, but like, you know, how genuinely when you pick a guy that you know is the one, how you're like, yeah, he treats you as you should be treated. And I look forward to, to that protective element. I look forward to, to them being able to talk to me about things and I want to be that pillar for them. And I really want to be that. Sorry to interrupt, but that's also having, having um, a healthy family life too is a great mm. example for the children to understand what to look for. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, if somebody, if they're dating somebody who, hopefully they're not dating like in high school. Cause you know, it's, it's inevitable. It's not going to work out. <laughs> well, I, 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 I'm with you, except at the same time, like, I do think that, you know, it's like, they're going to, you know, you ask a girl to a dance or coffee or whatever. I'm like, you gotta, you gotta get heartbroken. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. But like, I, I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is later on in life, they have a, a good example of what oh, yeah. a healthy family dynamic is. Mm, mm. They're less prone to make the mistake of marrying yeah, the, a loser. The guy or the woman who's not gonna yeah gonna help them get get that. Get, yeah, precisely right. Um, here's the thing. I think that this is so important for me. Like, I think that part of fatherhood and motherhood is also like, I, I, to your point there, it's like, how do you pick? How do you teach your children how to select properly? And it's like, I don't want my marriage to also just be put on the back burner with having kids. Kids changes the whole dynamic of marriage. Right. Right now, if like you'd actually want to, you guys can go out there and get ice cream. You know, not a big deal. Uh, you learn that date nights have to get planned weeks out in advance <laughs> or something. Right. And right. everything that you do as a parent, you I die to that. yourselves. I hate and, that. I'm like, I'm more spontaneous. I don't uh -huh. like things out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I've been trying to hang out with Anthony. He's like, dude, you gotta, you gotta let me know ahead. I'm like, ah. <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing two weeks from now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly it, you know. And yeah. I think that I think that when you when and as far as I'm seeing, um, Dave Ramsey had a call today, and the woman was like, the new mom, um, seven month old, and was trying to figure out like how does the dynamic of the marriage get back into gear? And he has a he has a psychologist on named John Delaney, mm -hmm. who I'm very fond of. He has a very good series, very good channels, very good talks. And he was like, look, here's the thing. Um, it's never going to be the same. It's just not because there's a whole different set of information here. You have a kid. So what happens is that your peaks and your valleys, they, they extrapolate. Your peaks are going to be higher because you, you have a kid. They're going to be lower because you have a kid and a wife, right? And so it's a whole, but he heard from a, when he was going through the same thing, an older man who had children and a marriage and pretty rock steady said this, he was like, your 
you have the Twin Towers and the Twin Towers got destroyed. And now you have to build something stronger from the rubble. And having kids is awesome. And not getting to sleep is awesome. And having all the little fights and having all the little triumphs and failings is awesome. And if you go in with that mentality, that stays with it. So just earlier, I think that modeling a good marriage to our children, I think will be one of the most instrumental things in how they really understand how the faith is lived out and how family is lived out. So like, I love this about my parents. I'm, it's so funny. It's, it's ingrained in me. Like I, in my mind, I've never seen my parents ever kiss in the hallway, but I've always seen them kiss in the kitchen. <laughs> and what would happen is we'd be going away and my dad would like, just come embrace my mom and they'd just kiss a little bit. And I was like, that's I was so like, cool. Yeah. That's what I said. I told cool my mom the other day. I said, you know, that's like, for me, that image of you guys, like, you know, you guys have always been mom and dad to me and not like overly affectionate, it's, you know, in my mind, but then I see this like moment and I'm like, oh, like they're a married couple. Like yeah. they're supposed to be like a team effort still. And like, I want that for my kids. Like, I don't want to get complacent or complacent with Jen for the sake of the kids, you know, like. No, of course not. Because you know? ultimately your, your vocation is to be married to this person. That's exactly it. Yeah. There has to be affection. There has to be all the things that um, you had initially mm-hmm. and leading into the marriage, hopefully. Um, yeah. So yeah, of course. Yeah. What kind I don't of- think you'll have a hard time. I mean, <laughs> I mean, even you, Jenna, are in love, and I love Ashley. I don't. Know I mean, I hope you so. I was gonna say, well, what do you? <laughs> what kind of? Well, here, let me flip this kind of thing, right? So, I've I've said it by temperament. What kind of? What kind of mom do you think Ashley's gonna be? Because maybe part of your authoritarian temperament, like this, me and Jen, oh, like, like it balances out. Yeah, it balances out. You know, yeah. like fa- I do think I that think fathers so. are. I think a mom's authoritarianism or authority is different than a dad's. Like my mom was a first line of defense, right? biggest discipliner but when dad got involved like it was a it was a thing and i like that a lot yeah you know so i think i think ashley is gonna excel i um i've been observing not on purpose but only because you know with covid sometimes she works from home yeah and because she works with kids i get to i get to experience that kind of like from a distance right yeah yeah but um, just the way that she negotiates and negotiates situations with the kids and she mm. deals with kids with, with special needs. Okay. Um, and also I've, I've seen the way that she acts with her nephew who she's really fond of. Mm-hmm. I think I've gotten a pretty good idea of the kind of mom that she's going to be. And I think she's going to be pretty great. Yeah. And, and I think you made a really good point. I think it would be a really good balance to maybe my authoritarian side, the way that she's more nurturing. And I think that's more of like a natural, um, I think that, how do I explain this? I think this is more of a natural feminine quality of a mom mm-hmm. to, to be able to nurture a child in that sort of way. And also for the father to come in and form the child it's like um how do i explain it it's like fire and ice right like yeah you're, yeah you're two different elements but they're i don't know i don't know how to explain it without sounding kind of silly but <laughs> 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 but uh no I, I think i think with our joint effort and we have the same mindset you know we want to get these kids to heaven yeah. we want them saints i think that we're going to mesh together and obviously with your first kid, I've heard this a lot. 
uh, you make a lot of mistakes with your first child. Well, you don't stop making mistakes. It's not like you get it. No, you don't. You don't. Yeah, absolutely. You don't stop. But um, yeah, first is definitely the guinea pig. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. And my mom said that. So I am. I wonder. Well, not wonder. Um, You know, one thing that that I like. I one of the biggest things attracted my my dad to my mom. And I asked him, I said, and he said how she treated her parents and mm. how she is with kids. Like my mom was, my mom was meant to be a mom. You know, you could tell like she loves kids and Jen has like all those qualities. I think that Jen, you know, has, we have a nephew, uh, she has a nephew too. And I love how Jen interacts with kids. I think it is, it is like seeing that feminine quality bring out is so fantastic. I love it. it's wholesome it's so wholesome and especially and i feel like for her especially like coming from that kind of broken household like something feels so right because it's different from her tumultuous upbringing like just that nurturing side unabated but one thing that i heard from again my my friend with four daughters is he told me this he said you know you need to know your kids you need to know their temperaments and the reason Mm -hmm. why is because that's going to help you best relate to your kids but also it helps with discipline it helps with triumphs and everything so if you have a melancholic exactly. child, right, who naturally punishes themselves, right? Like I'm a believer in like, I'm a, I'm a very equality under the law kind of person, right? Like if you break the vase, like you'll get the same punishment if your sister breaks the vase, right? But like when you have to sit down <laughs> and actually talk to your kids, right? And try to help yeah. them become adults to get to heaven, right? You're going to deal with it. Like I'm a sanguine, like you're going to deal with the sanguine different. Sanguine's just, sanguine's, you would sit down, you go like, uh, they, they, they put the temperaments out like this, right? Suppose that you need the, 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 the yard raked and you have four children and your sanguine kid, you look at them and you say, if you rake the leaves, you'll get a cookie. Sanguine goes, oh my gosh, I love cookies. And like, go do it, right? Uh, you, to the choleric, the choleric's all about duty. So you say, look, we got to rake these leaves because if we don't rake the leaves, then it's going to be a mess in the lawn and like all this kind of stuff and squirrels are going to die or something. And choleric's going to go, okay, my duty's to rake the leaves. I got it. Uh, the melancholic, he said the funniest thing. He's like, the melancholic, you just look at the melancholic and look up the yard, look back at the melancholic. And the melancholic will punish themselves and go rake the leaves. <laughs> <laughs> and the phlegmatic, which can sometimes be a tricky one to, to, to figure out, uh, the phlegmatic might say something like, well, my other three siblings are raking the leaves, so it seems like I'm going to rake the leaves. <laughs> I, don't need I guess to. I'll do it. Yeah, no, and also, yeah, I guess I'll go do it. Like, whatever. I, I want to <laughs> hang out with my brother. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that's true. And I think that's just as that's true with understanding, like, communicating with your wife, like, knowing, Jen's, knowing Jen's temperament has been so helpful because we respond to things way differently. Like, I, Jen needs more time. Jen's colic melancholic means that she has a quick impression on things and it takes more of a time for her to kind of process through that thing. Right. Right. My sanguine side means like I have a quick reaction to things and I'm quick to forget the thing. And <laughs> when we fight, that is so completely true because yeah. like, I'll be like, well, we could be in the midst of something. And I'm like, I told her, I'm like, Jen, if, if we were in the midst of something and you look at me and you say, I don't want to fight anymore. Or you text me later that you love me. I'll drop the freaking thing. But quick, we're friends again. That's cool. That's cool. That's cool. And I'll be like, I cannot do the same with you. I know that I'm going to give you a day and then you're going to be like, okay, we're friends again <laughs> or something. <laughs> so, so it's true with your kids, I hear. Sorry, one sec. Yeah, sure. Uh, Mr. Popular. And she's like, hey, 
I need to do this. Is it okay if I make noise? <laughs> well, well, we can, we can, yes, we can, <laughs> go ahead. You can, can line down a little bit. I think this has been a, an excellent episode. Um, yeah, I think so too. That was a good trad chat. Yeah, it was very good. Trad chat number one, which is exciting as sin, just, just spitballing. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, do you see, uh, so I want to, I want to really quickly uh, thank our subscribers because our subscribers have been popping up from all over the place. We have, we have over 350 currently on YouTube and um, we made it. We made it. We're bigly. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everybody who shares the videos. Everyone who watched, we, we have a lot of different kinds of videos that are obviously reaching a really, really cool amounts of audience. So, um, you know, please, if you like Rudy has really incredible videos on restoring all the sacred items that he has, this missile one is just absolutely incredible. Uh, really great cinematography. Like, and, and it's, again, it's Catholic <laughs> ASMR. So put on your headphones and relax. Um, our, our, I'm doing a little series on Catholic masculinity. I think we touched on actually a great amount of it about fatherhood here in this last little section. But uh, the hard yeah, truth about por- series. I the like hard truth about pornography has over a thousand views right now. Um, that's yeah, that's our our most famous video. That's it's our most an incredible video. video. Yeah, and so thank good you. one for guys. Great one for guys. Girls. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, everyone, and thank you for everyone who's who's really kind of helped share and spread the videos. I mean, it's incredible. Um, hearing from people hearing from you all about the topics you want to hear about stories you want to share see your interactions in the comments but you know this is a labor of love for rudy and i um and we're really really grateful i'd say certainly to god and to the church and to traditional catholicism because uh you know we we do this just for the heck of it right we do this because we love the lord and because we want to get stuff off our chest too you know (laughs) yeah. <laughs> so, um, so if you haven't already, please go ahead, like, comment, subscribe, hit the notification bell. The most important thing you can do for our videos is share, share, share. So if you have friends, colleagues, family, coworkers, I don't care, uh, anybody who you think would love any of our many videos that we have, uh, please, please, please share these videos. They're always uber helpful. Um, and you can follow us along. Of course, our Twitter is pretty much defunct. Who uses Twitter anyway? That's fake news. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, after all the censorship and stuff, I oh my gosh, that's right. Please pray for the election and pray for the president, the real president, the emperor. So, (laughs) um, but yeah, thank you so much. You can follow us on Instagram, of course. You can also see pretty much uh, a lot of our longer form videos like this, uh, wherever podcasts are. Literally, we are everywhere. You can actually Google now Glad Chad Podcast and we pop up, which is come up. We're bigly, baby. We made a brand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, I think it's everything, Rudy. Really oh, what did you say? Real quick, I would like to um, encourage people to read Archbishop Vigano's latest letter. Oh, um, yes. Plug it. He, he asks us to pray for the situation that's going on right now. Obviously, some Democrats are celebrating already, and uh, I think they're celebrating a little bit prematurely. There's still a lot of time on the clock. Um, but Archbishop Vigano is asking us to, to pray, especially in a, in a special way for this situation. And the letter contains all the instructions on how to do that. Also, I would encourage you to look up Father Ripperger's Prayer of Command. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you uh, type that into Google or whatever you use for search, you type in Ripperger Prayer of Command, there's an article by Father Zoldorf that sort of explains um, that lady can pray this. It sounds like an exorcism, so I'll just 
I'll give you that warning straight up. Um, and so it might sound a little weird to do that, but uh, lay people are allowed to to pray this particular prayer. Um, so first, look at the Archbishop Vigano letter. Look at those instructions and add that to your prayer um, your prayer uh, uh, schedule every day. Hopefully you're praying every day. And also add that prayer of command by Father Ripperger uh, as well for the, uh, the outcome of this presidential election. Obviously, there's a lot of things that are at stake. And uh, don't forget, this is a very big culture war. Mm-hmm. And it helps to have a president like Donald Trump in office. Also, he's the emperor. Like, come on now. What are we doing? He's the emperor. The emperor. <laughs> I have this. I've, I would we, die for this man. I would. I would. Yeah. Can I ever tell you the dream? I really want Donald Trump needs to convert to Catholicism, restore the Holy Roman Empire, and then Archbishop Vigano is the one that crowns him Holy Roman Emperor. <laughs> so, it's Catholic. Wedding. That would be so cool, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm forgetting <laughs> off the hard truth of pornography. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, from us here at the Glad Trad Podcast, God bless you and may I keep you. See you on the next one. Adios. See you later.